Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Colossians 1, 28-29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 2 Timothy 2, 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. This week, we are continuing our series on God's mission in ours. And last week, we began by diving into the different aspects of our community mission by beginning with the first community mission, evangelism. Everybody say evangelism. Evangelism. Well, this week, we're going to be talking about our second aspect of the community mission, discipleship. Everybody say discipleship. Discipleship. And last week, I shared a story with you of my story of how I came to know Jesus. And that wasn't the end of my story, right? Uh, for, for me, I went from McPherson to Tulsa and then to here. And along that way, there were some people who really invested in my life. One of them was a, na- a man by the name of Pastor Jim Kyle. He was the pastor at a church in McPherson. And he uh, saw a couple of black dudes sitting in the front row, uh, waving our hands, excited about coming to know Christ. And he said, I'm going to get some time with it. The church was majority white. And he said, I'm going to go get some time with those guys. So he took us and invited us out to Pizza Hut because he used to be an old manager of Pizza Hut. He loved Pizza Hut. So he took us to Pizza Hut and he started opening up the scriptures with us. And it was beautiful. I learned so much through that experience. And God sent me on a journey to keep learning about him. So I went back to Tulsa. And then from there, I was told to come up here to Oklahoma City when I got to Oklahoma City, I met a man by the name of Jordan Bell and moved in with him out at Potomac House Apartments. At the time, that's what it was called. And then it went to Mayfair Square and now it's Magnolia Village. You know what I'm saying? You know how that works. And there, Jordan Bell invested his life in me. He spent time with me. He shared the gospel with me, encouraged me, did life on life. Everybody say life on life. And likewise, in our first passage, we see where discipleship starts. It starts with a call to Jesus. Verse 18 reads, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There are many times where Jordan would teach me about Jesus being the boss of my life. I needed to know that Jesus was my Lord. And that is exactly where this passage starts, y'all. These words from Jesus are, are considered a call to a mission, or you can say the Great Commission. 
our discipleship and discipleship ministry is a call to understand that Jesus has all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. This statement is no small one, y'all. This is Jesus fulfilling what, Je- what Daniel said, who is an Old Testament prophet in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I wish I had more time to unpack those verses, but go and check it out on your own and see this. That Jesus' reign is absolute and everlasting. Amen. Jesus has the keys to the kingdom. Or if you are from the hood, sometimes you can say Jesus has the keys to the yacht. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Jesus has the keys to everything. This is important because if Jesus did not have all authority, then our mission would be in vain. That's right. But that is not the case, y'all. So all the more we can be filled with joy, super joy, that the Lord calls us to labor with him in making disciples. Everything hinges off this truth. And, we can, and before we can truly make disciples, everyone say make disciples. Make disciples. Which is our title for today then we have to continually come back to this truth over and over again. Jesus has all authority, y'all. Do you believe that? Y'all, this should lead us to some holy confidence, right? If Jesus, therefore, has all authority, then all the things that act as roadblocks to us making disciples or being a disciple or trusting in him and walking with him, on the path to being a disciple and making disciples suddenly seem really small That's right. and insignificant. That's right. Everything that we put in the way. I don't know what that is for you today. Maybe that's some insecurities. Maybe that's some finances that seem to be kind of rocky. Maybe it's your personality. I'm just not somebody that really is attractive. Not just meaning physically, but I don't, I don't really attract people to me, so... I can't be a disciple. I can't be a disciple maker. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's some fears that you have, some doubts. Not to say that those aren't real fears and doubts and valid feelings. In verse 17, a verse back of the same chapter, we see that the disciples were worshiping Jesus, praising his name, and doubting at the same time. Yet Jesus still calls them to follow him. There's grace for us, my friends. That's right. But the call remains the same. And the call is to move past all that. Go ahead and move past that, church. Move past all that and gaze upon something that's beautiful. Something that's better. And that's Jesus having the keys to the kingdom. He has all authority and all power on earth and in heaven. Amen? Amen. So what I'm going to do right here then is I'm going to say a prayer for us. Say a quick prayer for us. Uh, I, I think there's some things in the way before we even get into talking about what does it mean to be a disciple or a disciple maker that we have to move past in order to do that. And so I'm going to pray for God's help because that's the only way it's going to work. Okay? So let's pray. Would you, if you wouldn't mind bowing your heads with me, I'm going to say a prayer over us and I'm going to pass it to John Mark. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we desperately need your help. Lord, I know I need your help. I know they need your help. In our congregation together, we collectively say, Lord, teach us how to be a disciple and how to be a disciple maker. Against all odds and all fears and all doubts, Lord, would you help us to walk with Jesus, 
to know him intimately and to share that life with others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you in your imagination to picture the scene that Jared was just describing. Jesus is exalted. He's about to ascend into heaven. And aren't you glad that the one who just said, I'm now in charge of everything, is the same one that died on the cross for our sins and rose again? The living Lord loves us more than we could imagine. Those disciples were gazing at him. They saw him die on the cross for their sins. They saw him rise from the grave. They were undoubtedly afraid because they had all abandoned Jesus and failed Jesus. And yet when he appears to them, he calls them brothers. He still loves them. He still forgives them. And now he has a command for them. He has a mission. And this mission wasn't just for them. It was for us. We know it was not just for them, for us, because in this command, he says, even to the end of the age. Now, the disciples, all, all those that were there are in heaven now. But the end of the age hasn't come yet, which means this command is for us. Everybody say it's for us. It's for us. And the command is these two little words, make disciples. Make disciples. That's the title of our sermon. That's the focus. Everybody say, make disciples. Make disciples. It's not quite clear from the English translation in here, but in Greek, it's clear that there's only one command in these verses. There's one imperative verb. Everything else is participles telling you how you do the verb. So how do you make disciples? Well, going, baptizing, teaching. But the command is simple. Make disciples. And I want to just take a second to talk about what that means by going back to basics. It's okay to go back to basics. Listen, if you're a brand new Christian, that's all right. We're going to get basic today. If you're a spiritual seeker that are trying to figure out what this is about, we're going to get basic today. If you've been a Christian for a long time, Lord knows, don't you need to come back to basics all the time? So let's talk, come back to basics. And I want to ask and answer four questions about what does that mean. First, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? Everybody say disciple. disciple. Now, the word disciple just means student or learner or follower. The problem, though, is that when we hear student, most of us probably have a picture in our mind, and it has something to do with everybody sitting in desks in rows, and there's one person who's standing up in front of everybody, writing stuff on a whiteboard, and they're taking notes for it to be ready for the test, right? That's what we think of when we think students. And that's not the kind of student a disciple is. We can learn what Jesus means by a disciple by looking at his ministry, by looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, but... What they were doing was in some ways new, but in other ways it fit what was happening with Jewish teachers at the time. And when they talk about a disciple and a teacher, you need to understand that um, this kind of discipleship is something much deeper than what we think of happening in a classroom. Okay, the teacher is also called master because the teacher has absolute authority to speak into your life. The teacher isn't just teaching you geometry or poetry or computer, computer science or how to balance a budget or whatever. The teacher is teaching you who God is and who you are. The teacher is teaching you the meaning of your life. The teacher is teaching you what does it mean to live a truly human life? What does it mean to live a life of wisdom that's marked by the goodness and love of God? Which means if I'm a faithful disciple I'm going to hang on my teacher's every word. If he says something, I don't let it slip to the ground. I take that word and I memorize it and I treasure it and I meditate on it and I think about it and pray about it and think about it until it has changed me from the inside out. 
It also means I'm trusting all of his promises. I'm obeying all of his commands. And it means I'm not just listening to his words, but I'm watching the way he lives because this teacher is for me an embodiment of the very wisdom of God. So I want to listen to what he says, but I want to watch how he lives and imitate his example. That's what a disciple is. Okay. Second question is, when Jesus says, make disciples, we need to be really clear in our minds, make disciples of whom? Make disciples of whom? And there's one answer. Everybody say, it's Jesus. This is so important. It seems simple. It seems obvious. But we can forget sometimes if I'm going to obey this command to make disciples, that does not mean that I'm going to go make disciples of John Mark. And you are not being commanded to go make disciples of you. Jared should not make disciples of Jared. We're all trying to make disciples of who? Jesus. In effect, Jesus is saying to each of us, I love you. I want you to follow me. I want you to listen to my words, imitate my example, and thus learn how to live as a child of God. Learn how to live with true freedom and wisdom and love and joy. And part of what that means is that as you follow me, I'm going to work through you to invite other people to follow me. And when I teach you, you're going to get to pass that on to others so that other people can follow me too. This is so important. And Jesus made this point very clearly a few chapters before this in Matthew chapter 23. Let me read you some really important words that he says. Matthew 23, starting in verse 8. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. There's one teacher, there's one instructor, there's one discipler. What's his name? Jesus. Jesus. Now, this should free us from pride. It should free us from pride. We should not have pride of like, I'm the great one and everyone needs to be like me. We also shouldn't be taking pride or getting identity from, oh, I'm discipled by Jared, so you know I'm the coolest. I'm discipled by Chauncey, so I'm also the coolest. Oh, I'm just discipled by John Mark. You know, we take away the pride and the shame. Okay? We don't want to think any of, of those ways, but it should also take away our feelings of inadequacy. Let's be real. Anybody ever feel inadequate as a discipler? Because you know you got all your own problems. You're thinking, how am I supposed to teach somebody how to live? Well, listen, you're not trying to teach them to be a disciple of you. You're trying to teach them to be a disciple of Jesus. He's got all authority. He's got all wisdom. So second question, making disciples of whom? The answer is Jesus. Third question, okay, so who are we supposed to disciple? Who are we supposed to teach to follow Jesus? The answer is right here in our text. Everybody say all nations. All nations. The Greek phrase here is pantaton ethne. It means every ethnic group, every culture on the earth. God wants a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational community of disciples who have been transformed by the grace of Jesus. Jesus has become the core of their identity. His love is flowing through them. And from Him, they're learning how to love one another. And He wants to cover the globe with these disciples from every ethnic group. Which means that if we do this right, if we obey what Jesus says about making disciples, then ethnic reconciliation and justice will automatically follow. Now, this doesn't work if we don't get the answer right to the previous question. 
If I'm trying to make disciples of me in a way that's trying to get people to look just like me, and then I try to do that cross-culturally, that's going to become oppressive assimilationism. Sometimes Christians have made that mistake. We've confused the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is eternal and universal, with our particular cultural reception of it. And then tried to force other people to be like us. That's not it, y'all. That's not it. Instead of trying to help people be like, just like me, I want to introduce people to Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, the source of life, so that He can be their Savior, their Lord. And though that unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and ties us to each other in a deep way, it doesn't necessarily make them more like me, but what it does is make them more fully themselves as the unique, specific individuals that God created them to be within their culture and within their context. So we're supposed to go to all nations, all over the world, every ethnic group, and make disciples of Jesus. Last question. How do, okay, how does a person become a disciple of Jesus? And back to basics here. Here's the simple starting point. The only reason any of us can become a disciple of Jesus is because He took the initiative. He reached out to us with His grace. Does anybody here deserve to be a disciple of Jesus? No. We have all sinned against God. We deserve judgment. But God wanted a relationship with us so much that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that if we trust in him, believe that simple message, by grace we're forgiven and now we enter into a relationship with Jesus. But then that's just the beginning of the relationship. Then we start doing all that stuff that we described in answer to the first question. We listen to the words of Jesus. We trust his promises We obey his commands. We watch his example. We imitate his example. We enter into a community of disciples to love each other and encourage each other. And that grace that found us in our sin doesn't leave us in our sin. It transforms us. Now, as we keep going, we'll talk about what are some of the marks of a disciple? How are some of the ways we're transformed? But first, let me pass the mic to Jared for a second so he can tell us about going. It's so good. We get an opportunity to imitate Jesus. Jesus came to us first, right? That's right. And we get an opportunity to go. You make disciples of all nations first by going. As one biblical scholar likes to point out, he says this, universal lordship means authority to send out a mission. I'm going to say that one more time because I want us to get this. Universal lordship means the authority to send out a mission. What does that mean? That means that Jesus has all authority everywhere, not a single place in the universe has any place where Jesus is not the Lord of. Do you, do you hear that church? Everything is under his control. His control is absolute. He is the boss and he can send you wherever he wants. Friends, when is the last time that you thought because Jesus is Lord, he has authority to send me wherever he wants. Oftentimes, I'm really guilty of this. I say, let me go here and there, Lord, to serve you. But the book of James corrects me all the time. I love reading the book of James. James 4.15 says, instead, you ought to say this. If the Lord wills. Yes, Chauncey, I love that. Thank you for talking to me. Y'all can talk to me. Come on. You can talk to John Mark too. The Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. Jesus having all authority means this. He is Lord and has the ability to tell us what to do. That's right. He has the ability to tell us what to do, y'all. Now, for some in here, that makes you really uncomfortable. That sounds scary, right? But for me, that's super comforting. That's super comforting because our God would not send us to a place 
He did not prepare us to go. That's right. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. I mean, come on, y'all. Come on. Come on. Come on. I'm trying to shake you up. I'm trying to wake you up. Come on. We can't lose submitting to the Jesus plan. That's right. Jesus' call to go wherever he wants us to be is the best place we could possibly be. That's right. The center of his will. Last week we spent some time talking about evangelism as, 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 as a second, as, as, as our second place. Um, the, the first thing that we could do to make disciples. And it's our first community mission. We said that the edge of discipleship is evangelism. Or the very beginnings of discipleship is evangelism. Going and telling others, y'all, is what we're called to do. You can't be a disciple if you haven't submitted to Jesus. Let that sink in. You can't be a disciple if you haven't submitted to Jesus. We can't make disciples of all nations if they are unconverted. So therefore, we must go. And if you want to be a disciple maker, you got to go to the people, y'all. Got to go. That's where we start. That's why one of our mantras at Christ Community Church is taking church to the people. Taking church to the people. I love to gather together as a body like this. Isn't that fun? You, you love worshiping the Lord together? But more importantly, as the family of God, we come together to worship God and encourage each other, and then we go take the church to the people wherever they are, in apartment complexes and neighborhoods and schools and college campuses all over our city. We're trying to go to the people. As we're going, the next two things that Jesus says is we're baptizing and we're teaching. So let's talk about what each of those mean. As we make disciples, we baptize people, which has a threefold significance. When we're baptized, we're publicly identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Now, behind us is a baptistry. We've baptized several people there already in the last year, and we got five or six more that are ready to be baptized soon. Aren't you excited about that? Some of y'all on the list. And uh, when we baptize people, they're going into the water. That's a picture. I'm dying with Jesus to my old way of life. My sins are under the blood of Jesus. They're already punished on the cross. They're done. And I'm rising with Jesus to a new life. So I'm identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection in a public way. Second, as I identify with Jesus, I'm also identifying with the triune God whom he reveals. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the name above every name. God, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. So that as I identify with Jesus, now the Father of Jesus Christ is my Father. And I'm secure in his love. And the Spirit of Jesus Christ is my Lord living within me, leading me. And third, I'm also publicly identifying with the church of Jesus Christ. Understand this. To be baptized is to say, I'm with Jesus. I'm with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm with everybody else who's with Jesus. Which means at at the core of discipleship is church. Trying to do discipleship in isolation. Trying to follow Jesus on my own, separated community is, is unbiblical. And trying to make disciples disconnect from that community is unbiblical. But not only are we baptizing, we're also teaching. Everybody say teaching. Teaching. And Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I commanded you. Now, if I was going to tell you all of that, we could just sit up here and read the whole Bible because it's all from Christ, right? But specifically, we can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What does he teach his disciples? And we don't have time to talk all, about all that, but let me just give you a few summary points. Jesus teaches his disciples to respond to God's grace and trusting in God's forgiveness. 
Jesus teaches the disciples to live a lifestyle of prayer. He talks about it all the time. You can start in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Pray to your Father who loves you. Jesus teaches the disciples to embrace the lifestyle of radical mercy and generosity, especially caring for the poor. You go to Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36, or you can go to Luke chapter 12 to read more about that. Jesus calls his disciples to a lifestyle of radical truth and faithfulness and integrity. We do what we say. Our words and our life are consistent. You can go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37. Jesus calls his disciples to a lifestyle of justice marked by particular concern for the poor and the vulnerable, for the widow and the fatherless and anybody who's on the margins of society needing our help. You go to Matthew 23, 23 or Luke 11, 42 or Matthew 25, 1 through 46. Jesus sums up all of his teachings with the love command that we read about in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Teach people to obey his commandments. Now, let's take a poll. Who feels like you could still have some room to grow in loving God with all you are and loving your neighbor as yourself? Some of us have been trying for a while now, right? Who, wait, let's, let's do this too, though. Who, by God's grace, feels like over the years you have grown? Okay, give God glory. Let's clap for God. You've grown. But we still got a long way to go, right? And now, to be a disciple maker means I share the gospel and invite people to trust Jesus, but now I'm also trying to teach them to live this lifestyle that I'm still trying to learn how to live. You don't have to be done and finished and mature all the way um, before you start making disciples or else none of us would make disciples till we're in heaven and then we can't do it anymore, right? So we got to start now while we're in the middle of the journey. But we start now by teaching people with our words and with our example. We share the words of Jesus with people and we share our lives with people, which helps them see the love of Christ through us and helps them be able to visualize what does it look like to authentically obey the commands of Christ within the nitty-gritty of day-to-day life. And that is so good. And as we do this, remember, fam, that we don't do this in our own strength. Let's look at verse 20 again. I mean, God's presence is with you. I am with you always. You hear that absolute language? Always to the end of the age. I mean, come on. Come on, y'all. God's presence is with you. The commission began with Jesus announcing that he has all authority in heaven and earth. Now it concludes with Jesus promising to be with his disciples all the days until the end of the age. Although the mission sometimes seems daunting, y'all. Does it ever seem daunting to y'all? Does it seem hard sometimes? Even though it does, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, my power and my presence is enough for you to do the task of being a disciple and being a disciple maker. Do you feel that? Hey, do you believe that? Get in your heart right now. His power and presence is enough. It's enough, church. I, I need to hear that today. Do you feel that, church? Is this fire you up to submit to Jesus and follow the Jesus plan to make disciples and be a disciple. It does for me because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 7, 14. You can write down these verses. I don't have enough time to go through them. A burden carrying God. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Mike, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is a burden-carrying God. Although he's absent in the body, in John 14, 
we see that Jesus is going to send another helper to us. The Father would send a helper to us that would be with us. The Spirit would live in us. Jesus says he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. And well, Jesus did that. For real. God's presence at Pentecost came into the world in a new way in Acts chapter 2. In such a way, it was poured out on us in every single way. Now, believers in Christ have God in them forever. I was reading First John this week, y'all. Y'all don't understand, man. The, <laughs> the, the, the fact that I'm up here with all the stuff that's going on. I can't even share all of it with you. Some of y'all got some stuff going on this, this week. But John told me, to this week in First John, a good old story that he who is in me is greater than he who's in the world. I'm going to say that one more time. He who is in me is greater than he who's in the world. That means Satan ain't got no place on you. That's right. You can be a disciple of Jesus and you can make disciples of Jesus Christ no matter the circumstance. Do you believe that church? That Jesus is with you always until the end of the age. Let's be and make disciples, y'all. All right, we've been breaking down the Great Commission, these last words of Jesus. But for the last few minutes we have together today, we're going to try and get real practical for just a second. We're going to talk about, okay, now I'm fired up because Jared is very zealous and I caught it through the <laughs> Holy Spirit, right? And now that I'm fired up, what do I do? How do I make disciples? Now, when we talk about how do I make disciples, we're talking about method. We're talking about technique. And when we talk about method, talk about technique, a um, few things to recognize. Listen, we got people coming from all over the place in here. A lot of people in this room, you're brand new to the Christian faith. You're just trying to understand what we're even talking about here. And you're like, give me something simple I can do. And before you leave here today, we're going to try to give you some simple stuff you can do. Sound good? Mm -hmm. Others of us are in here. We've come from different church backgrounds or maybe different parachurch ministries that have shaped our thoughts about what does it look like in practice to make disciples. And that's cool. You've got some models in your mind now, but we're trying to bring all those to the Lord with humility and say, Lord, teach us again, teach us again. How do we do this? And as we talk about method, there's two mistakes we want to avoid. One of them is feeling like I don't want to embrace any kind of method because you can't put me in a box. I'm just going to wander around and it's going to happen. Guess what? If you have that mentality, that's not very mature and you're probably just going to wander around. It's probably not going to happen, right? Uh, Ezra Pound, uh, y'all have heard me quote the poet Ezra Pound. He said, technique is the test of sincerity. Mm. And he was talking about poetry, but I'm talking about discipleship. Mm. Listen, we need methods. We need practical tools. We need practical strategies. And if you want to get good at this, you need to get around some people like Jared that are really good at it. And learn from them how, how to do this so you can learn some technique. Now, the other mistake that we make, though, is taking our methods, especially if we've seen a method that had some biblical principles in it, and it was really effective in one context, and thinking that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it in all contexts. And we end up making an idol out of our method, and then often we get critical of other people for not doing it right um, in our minds. And often if the people who are most critical, if you look around and see how many disciples are they really reproducing, how many lost people they're really leading to Christ, it's usually not that, like, why are you being so critical of everybody else? So we need to not make an idol out of our method. We also need to not reject any method. The, the Bible does not mandate, here's one clear method of how you got to do it. What the Bible does is give us examples of faithful and fruitful disciple makers that we can learn from their example. And it gives us principles 
of disciple making. It gives us examples. It gives us principles. And then it teach, one of the principles is that we need wisdom and creativity to learn how to contextualize those methods in different contexts and situations based on the culture and the people and what's going on there. All right. So what we're going to do for the next few minutes is talk super, super briefly on the example of two great disciple makers. How did Jesus make disciples and how did Paul make disciples and give you a couple principles and practical steps to take out the door. So let me say a few words about how did Jesus make disciples. Now, I want to especially think about how did Jesus disciple the 12 that were closest to him? Okay, but before I do that, it's also important to remember that there's the Bible refers to a group of people as the disciples of Jesus, which is much larger than the 12. The 12 are not the only disciples. And if we want to say, how did Jesus make disciples? We need to keep in mind that larger group, too. Let me show it to you. Uh, it's more, more pronounced in the Gospel of Luke. You can see it. Let me read you a few verses. First, this is Luke chapter 6, starting verse 13. It says, And when day came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Now, I want you to catch here. There was a larger group of people who he already calls his disciples before he singles out the twelve as his apostles. Okay? A larger group of disciples. And then, if you keep reading a few verses, listen to what comes up in verse 17. It says, after Jesus chose the twelve, it says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. Mm-hmm. And it talks about a great multitude of people who are not his disciples came to him and he taught them and healed them and so on. But the multitude is not the same thing as the crowd here. The crowd is a crowd of disciples. So we're talking about probably hundreds of people that are called his disciples here. Mm-hmm. And some of those people, as time goes on, he's going to entrust aspects of his mission to them. Luke chapter 10, verse 1 says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two in every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this larger group. Who is this crowd of hundreds of disciples? Who are those 72? What was the method? How long did he work with them? But it's probable that most of these people did not have anything like the one-on-one access with Jesus that the twelve had. Most of those people who are being called disciples here probably had access to him primarily through his public teaching ministry. But that was enough they were, for them to hear his words, to watch his example, to begin to imitate his example. His words were going into their heart and beginning to transform them such that the Bible calls them disciples of Jesus. Now, this is important for me. I got to be honest. Sometimes I struggle with a critical spirit. Anybody struggle with a critical spirit sometimes? I like to get critical of others. And sometimes I've especially been critical of ministries or churches that are doing things different than the way I like for them to do it. And if they're primarily focused on large group ministry, large group proclamation of the word, it's real easy for me to say, y'all aren't even making disciples. And maybe some of us have a similar tendency to be really critical. But I want to say we got to be really careful here. Because it may be that we're mistaking our narrow conception of what it means to make disciples for the biblical conception. Because the Bible talks about all those crowds that were following Jesus as disciples. And it may be that we're inadvertently slandering the church of God based on an unbiblical view of discipleship, which would quench the Holy Spirit. Anybody want to do that? No. No. So let's not go around being critics of everybody else. Instead, let's work on ourselves. Amen. Amen. But now let's be quick to say... But what Jesus did with the 12 was really, really important because those were the 12 who were not only going to begin to follow Jesus and be transformed by him, but who were going to be the leaders who could then make disciples, who would make disciples 
and it would reproduce generationally, which is ultimately what he wants for all of us. Okay, so we can say that if as a church we make our focus, what happens in settings like this, large group settings on Sunday morning. Listen, by God's grace, his word can be active in people's life and so people can start growing as disciples of Jesus. But if we never do anything else, we will almost certainly not be reproducing leaders, which means these disciples won't be reaching that full level of maturity that Jesus wants them to be where they're also reproducing disciples themselves. So we don't want to do that either. So let's look at what he does with the 12. And the biggest thing that we can note that he does with the 12 is they spend a lot of time with him. Jesus spends a lot of time with him in a variety of different settings. It wasn't just public teaching settings. It was in small groups of 12 and in small groups of three. Probably there was one-on-one, although we never really see him doing that. But there was definitely a lot of small group time in a lot of different life situations eating together, talking about problems, working through conflicts, all kinds of stuff. But what marked them is clear from Mark 3, 14. It says, and Jesus appointed 12, whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him. Mm. That's the key word. Everybody say, with him. With him. It was about time with Christ. And we could summarize what he did with him with five words. I'm going to teach them to you. You might want to jot these down. What did he do with them? Well, here's five things he did. Everybody say, model. Model. Include. Include. Explain. Explain. Deploy. Deploy. Debrief. Debrief. Let me explain what those words mean. Model. Include. Explain. Deploy. Debrief. If Jesus wanted to train his disciples to do something, he took them through those steps over and over. So he wants to teach them how to pray. First, he models for them. He just prays and they watch him pray. Then he includes them. He invites them, come away and pray with me. So they're being involved in what he's doing. Then he explains principles. Here's what I'm teaching you about prayer. He breaks it down for them as a teacher. Then he deploys. That means he sends them to do it on their own. Then they come back and talk about it. That's debrief. When he wants to teach them how to do evangelism, that's what he does. He takes them through those steps. That only happens if we have life-on-life intimacy. It's a much deeper level of training. So what Jared and I are doing right now is part of the Great Commission. But Jared and I also spend a lot of time every week with individuals and with small groups of three, four, or five saying, hey, let's go share the gospel together. Let's have a quiet time together. Let's model, include, explain, deploy, debrief. And if we're doing that kind of more intimate life on life stuff, now we can be reproducing leaders who can reproduce leaders. And that's where we want to get as a church. Amen. And Paul likewise imitated Jesus's ministry. Paul is a student of Jesus, was no greater than his master. Paul cared for crowds of people. And he had a small missionary crew that was very, that he was very intentional with and training for the purpose of reproduction. Timothy, Titus, Erastus, and so on. And why did he do this? Let's read Colossians 1, verses 28 to 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Why did he do this? Maturity in Christ. Everybody say maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ. God wants the body of Christ to be mature. So in verse 28, Paul's aim is to present everyone mature in Christ. His mission comes from Jesus, so his aim is to be like him. So how did Paul do this, you might say? Well, Paul proclaimed Jesus Verse 28 says, him we proclaim, meaning Paul was not trying to make disciples of Paul, just like John Mark told us earlier. We don't make disciples of ourselves. We make disciples of who? Jesus. He was trying to proclaim Jesus and make disciples of Jesus. 
Now, Paul was no scaredy cat. Paul was not a man who was ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes, I'm just going to say this right here. Paul wasn't no punk. He wasn't. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul was determined to share Jesus with the lost. Again, you have to share Jesus if you want to be a disciple maker. But he also didn't just share Jesus with evangelism. He shared by teaching and warning. Look at the next words in this verse. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Paul didn't just evangelize with his proclamation. He also spent massive amount of times investing in, in teaching and warning crowds of people and a few who would teach others as well. He did this in synagogues, did it in front of King Agrippa. He also did it in houses to houses. I don't have time to point you to a bunch of scriptures, but in Acts 5.42, it says that the 12 disciples were doing this. They were going from synagogue and to house to house. They were doing this over and over again. And you better believe Paul was doing that same thing too. Paul also worked with a lot of wisdom. Working with wisdom was incredibly important to Paul. No way was Paul going to let some foolishness get in the way of making disciples. I, I've done the work of asking myself this week this, this question, Lord, what are, what are some of the things that I'm just being really foolish about that is kind of like weakening the blade of my disciple-making ministry? And I'm just going to ask you the same thing. What is that? What is that thing that's getting in the way of you being a disciple of Jesus and a disciple maker? Because I'm going to say this to you. There's some things that you need to let go of, some foolishness that you need to let go of in order to be a disciple of Jesus and a disciple maker of Christ. Paul says it even more clearly and strongly in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Y'all, these days are evil, right? Brothers and sisters, it's time to make best use of the time. Let's make disciples by letting go of some of that foolishness that we're clinging on to. Now, the next thing he did with his proclamation, proclaiming Jesus, is that he toiled with Christ's energy. This is not just like some kind of like human effort that Paul was trying to muster up, right? This is God's effort through a faithful man. He knows that God's desire is to bring Christians to maturity and that God has called him to share with, with him in this work. So he lets go of foolishness and starts toiling with the energy of Christ. He can therefore work hard without the stressful motivations and either pride or fear attached to it. It's because God is at work that Paul is at work. Now, again, Paul proclaims Christ, but he also does this very strategically. Let's look at Second Timothy chapter 2, and let's read it again. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, Paul had a close, tight-knit group. He had a large group of people he was ministering to, and he also had a close, tight-knit group of disciples who he would disciple, and they would disciple others. Timothy, Silas, Erastus, Titus, Tychicus, Artemis. These guys went on journey 
after journey with him. And he met some others on, on the way, like Priscilla and Aquila, who would teach Apollos as well the scriptures. They were making disciples who would make disciples. These faithful people, journey after journey, watched him go from temple to house to house. They watched him suffer with joy. They watched him navigate broken systems with joy. They were for real life on life. Everybody say life on life. Life on life. Those people would go on and they would teach others also. Those people Paul invested in needed needed to, to go forward and Paul needed them to take the message. And so Paul recognizing this and knowing the movement he was being swept up into allowed for himself to die so that others could live and they would reproduce later. It needed to outlast him. They needed to reproduce, and they did, which is how we got the gospel to us, right? Some people laid down their lives and passed it on, and it got to us because Paul followed Jesus and strategically entrusted the ministry to faithful people. All right, we're almost done, family, but I, I want to drop to you a, a last few principles here and some practical stuff you can walk out with. Now, as we turn from the example of Jesus and the example of Paul and ask the question, okay, what principles can we see how those first churches that we read about in Acts and in the epistles in the New Testament, what can we learn from their disciple-making ministry? And Let me just point out to you three things. First of all, in those churches, everybody shares the word with everybody. Everybody encourages everybody. Everybody serves everybody. Everybody prays for everybody. Everybody teaches everybody. So that in one important sense, all of the disciples are discipling all of each other all the time. Mm -hmm. Right? So in the body of Christ, there's a real sense in which I disciple you, you disciple me, we all disciple each other. And you say, how does that work? Who's the discipler? Who's the disciple? And we already heard the answer to that question. Who's the discipler? Jesus. Jesus. We're getting it. That's how that works. We don't all have the same role, but... Jesus is the ultimate discipler. So we can read about this in various passages. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 is a great one. Let me read you Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, in the Greek, that's plural. So in Oklahoman, we would say, let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. As a community, the Bible lives deeply in all of us, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we all disciple each other. That's one principle. A second principle, though, is we all have a role to play, but we don't all have the same role. Okay? We all have a role to play, but we don't all have the same role. The key texts on this are Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4 also has some helpful ideas. But uh, just to summarize real quickly, what it looks like for you to make disciples is going to depend a lot on your spiritual gifting, your vocation, your life stage, and your maturity level. Mm. Right? So... What I'm, what it looks like for me to make disciples right now as a middle-aged pastor is, uh, I was Googling yesterday, what is middle-aged? And from the Google consensus, yes, I am middle-aged. So just confirm that. But as a middle-aged pastor, what it looks like for me to make disciples is very different than what it looked like when I was 15. I, I had the privilege, I shared last week, of coming to know Christ from a young age. When I was 15, it looked really different. But even though I was not very mature yet, there was some 12 to 14-year-olds and the ministry that I was a part of that were brand new believers that needed people to pour into them. So I started working with them in small groups, helping them grow in their faith. And you could do that, too. Uh, it looked different when I was 20. And I had a bunch of peers who had 
they were my age, but they had become believers more recently. So I was trying to help them grow in their faith, but it was more as a peer level. We're getting together to talk about how we grow in our faith, and I'm sharing principles, but it's a, it's a peer friendship. So it's going to depend on your life stage. It's going to depend on your spiritual gifting. Uh, it's going to depend on your maturity level. If you're like, man, I'm a brand new believer. How am I supposed to do this? Listen, if you're a brand new believer, just serve and learn, serve and learn, serve and learn, serve and learn. But the thing is, if you keep serving and learning, serving and learning, there's going to come a point two or three years from now that you're going to already know more about Christ than 80% of the planet. And at that point, here's what you do. You add something in, serve, learn, teach, serve, learn, teach, serve, learn, teach, right? So if you've learned three things about Jesus, you can find somebody who only knows two things and help them along on their journey, right? So uh, that, that's just something to keep in mind. What does it look like for my role, my gifting, my vocation? Third principle, what we see in the New Testament is, in general, more mature believers should invest time in less mature believers using a more intentional life-on-life mentoring strategy like what Jesus and Paul did with their small band. Okay? Now, it's going to look different for most church members. Jesus and Paul were both single men that got paid for what they're doing. Sometimes Paul also made tents to support his own ministry, but a lot of times they were both fully funded so they could spend all day, every day, investing in a group of guys who are also doing the same thing. It's going to be different if you are a mom with small kids or if you're a guy that's working 50 hours a week and then on the weekends, you know, or in the evenings trying to sign people, it's going to look different. It's going to be slower. But what you can do is find life on life strategies to start investing with people. Lots of great texts of scripture on this. If you want one, just go look at Titus chapter two, verses three through five, where Paul is saying for the older, more mature women to teach the younger women and help them grow in maturity. Now, that's three principles. Here it is. We all disciple each other. What it looks like is going to vary based on our role, our vocation, our life stage, our maturity level. But in general, more mature people in the church need to get deep life investment in less mature people that are newer believers in the congregation. Now, simple steps. I'm going to give you a couple simple steps. I would encourage everybody to pray. And as I'm talking, ask the Holy Spirit to show you one or two of these you can work on this week. Are you ready? Mm. Um, I'm going to give you a couple steps on being a disciple and then a couple steps on making disciples. Okay, on being a disciple. I assume there's some people here that are ready to take the first step on their journey. Here's what it is. Trust Jesus and get baptized. If you haven't done those things yet, that's the first step. Come today. Make the decision. I know I've sinned against God, but I trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Jesus, forgive me. And then show that faith publicly by getting baptized. And we will rejoice with you. Won't we, church family? Amen. Uh-huh. That's step one. Step two. You're here today, which means you're looking for a community. And I want to affirm that. If you've trusted Jesus and been baptized, you really need to get quickly plugged into a healthy church community so you've got other disciples to walk with to help you grow in your faith. Step three, if, if you've already done that, now you need to start working on reading your Bible and praying regularly, daily, so you can cultivate a personal relationship with Jesus. You're not always receiving Jesus secondhand through other believers. You're going to the source. Yeah. And let me just give you an encouragement. Don't start at the beginning. Because I can already tell you, if you manage to make it to Leviticus, you're going to get stuck there. Instead, start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over and over. By the time you've memorized and applied everything in those, come and talk to me. We'll talk about where to go next, okay? Um, But that's a great place to start. Um, Fourth step, if you haven't already done this, find a mentor. If you've never found a mentor who can meet with you one-on-one or small groups to help you grow in your faith, to talk about deep heart issues, find that mentor. And get. here's the big thing, though. Having a meeting isn't the big deal. The big deal is giving them access to your heart. Mm. Mm. Where you're opening up the vulnerable places where they, 
and the power of the Holy Spirit can help speak the gospel to you. Yeah. All right? Man. So ask the Lord to show you some of those. If you don't know where to find a mentor, come and talk to us, and we will be glad to try and help you find one. This is another great reason to go to community groups. If you're going to community group and every week you're struggling with stuff and there's somebody in there who seems more mature than you, they're probably just scared to ask you because they don't want to offend you. Say, hey, can I start getting some time with you to talk about my faith? And they may say, I don't know how to do that, and that's okay because now I've got some tips for those people. All right, now on making disciples. Here's what I want to say. If you've been growing in your faith for a while, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show you one or two of these steps you can take. Find a newer believer in our church. You can also find them elsewhere. That's great, too. Um, But find a newer believer in our church and ask them to spend time with ask to spend time with them to talk about growing as a Christian. This doesn't have to be complicated. Listen, you do not go up to somebody after church and say, hey, you seem less mature than me. Here's a five year contract. I would like to be your disciple. That's awkward. Some guys have tried asking girls out with a strategy similar to that. Did it work, brothers? Never mind. You don't have to identify yourself. I went on ahead and answered. <laughs> you don't want to do that, right? Just walk up and say, hey, um, could we get some time to start talking about how to grow in a Christian and start that relationship? Now, when you get together, there's a lot of practical advice I can give you about what to do. But here's the simple, simple, simple stuff. Some of you, we've met in groups week after week for months talking about in detail what to do. But here's simple stuff, simple steps. Start by listening to that person. It's just simple. Ask them questions about their life and listen to them. Step two is pray with them. Isn't this easy? Hey, let's take a poll. Can you, can you listen to somebody? Yep. Can you pray with somebody? Yep. All right, you're doing good. Now, open the Bible and start reading it and discussing it with them. Can you do that? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, here, here's a great next step to take. As you're listening to them and praying with them, the Holy Spirit is going to be bringing stuff to mind, bringing scriptures to mind. You open the Bible, you read with them. Now, the next step is talk to them about what God has been teaching you lately. Like, what has God been teaching you this week? Because now you're beginning to model for them. You can have a dynamic, personal, day-to-day relationship with Christ. They need to pick that up with you. And then start taking them with you to serve and share the gospel together. Don't make it just hanging out. Take them with you to serve and share the gospel together. If you're not actively serving and sharing the gospel, go back to those other ones. Find a mentor who can help you start doing those things. And then you start actively serving and sharing the gospel and then invite people that can come with you to serve and share the gospel with you. Now, if you want more guidance, please, there's some, there's some pros in here. I'm telling you, Jared knows how to make disciples. There's some men and women in our church, not just pastors either. John and Jen Kelsey are pros. You know, what, a long time ago, I was about to say the number of years, but we don't want to do that. A long time ago, when I was in college, I met with Kels for a couple years, and he helped me a lot to think about what does it look like to mentor people in this way. Reach out to some people that have been doing it for a long time, and they can help you. Can you do this? Can you take one of these steps this week? All right, let me say a prayer for you. Our Father, I thank you for this church. Lord, as I've tried to invest in people life on life, I know it's costly and it's inefficient. And sometimes it's it's discouraging because people I've invested in hundreds of hours for years then walk away from the faith, like Judas walked away from Jesus and Demas walked away from Paul. And it can be discouraging. But I also think back over the last 20 years of my life of those that you've given me the privilege of walking closely with for hundreds of hours over years, and now they're reproducing third and fourth and fifth generation. And I just give thanks to you for your grace. And Lord, in this church right now, there's already a lot of disciples and a lot of disciple makers, but we just pray humbly, give us more, Lord. Give us more. Take these words that were spoken today, help them to find a home in the deep places of our heart. And if there's a step of humility or a step of courage 
that any of us need to take to get more actively involved in this business. Help us to take the step and not delay. In Jesus' name, we thank you for forgiving us and helping us as we're trying to follow you. Amen.